standard issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here and welcome to our standard issue review of the year. And although I've probably said what a year that was before 2020, I'm not sure I've ever meant it as much as I do now. It's been like being on a roller coaster and not just because I've had to queue for ages to get here. So we decided to call in the experts to chat 2020, what the hell it all means and what we've learned about small P and big P politics. So here's Mickey and I chatting to those excellent women, Helen Lewis and Aisha Hazarika. But before that, we just want to say Happy New Year to you all. You're probably not going to spend New Year's Eve in the way you imagined or wanted to. But here we are. Here's to a better 2021. Until then. Hello and welcome to the Standard Issue Podcast Review of the Year. Mickey and I are here. Hello. Nice work. And we are joined by two excellent guests, political correspondent, writer and comedian Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello, hello. Labour entered 2020, having taken a hammering in the general election. It crowned a new leader in the middle of a pandemic. Its previous leader has been in the party, out of the party, in the party, who knows. Overall, given all of 2020's givens, has it been a good year for Labour? Yeah, it has been a good year for Labour because we just don't have Jeremy Corbyn as leader anymore. So I'm just really happy to bank that as like a net positive, a very small positive, but a net positive nonetheless. Helen Lewis, renowned journalist, author of The Brilliant Difficult Women, which is a cracking book and just all round good egg. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. On a similar note, local media is on its arse, the civil war at The Guardian and The New York Times. But in totality, do you think 2020 has been a good or bad year for the media? I mean, not to start off the kind of standard issue misery hour, but uh, (laughs) it's not not been a great... No, there have been... There's been a huge number this year of um, journalist arrests around the world, a huge number of local papers really struggling. And to move on to the most important subject, me... (laughs) <laughs> um, it's been, it's no, it's it's been a really tough year to be a journalist because all of the stuff that I think of is, you know, the world needs more of, i.e., in-person reporting rather than people having hot takes about things that they've seen on Twitter, has been much much harder to do. Um, and I know that that's something that people have felt all across the media. You know, it's really hard to hold the government to account when you're kind of doing it on a Zoom call to the you know, prime minister, or even actually the same. I think this you say the same thing about backbench MPs at PMQs. You know, actually the the, the function of journalism is a lot harder to accomplish when you can't go and see people and talk to them and you can't stand in front of a politician and not let them leave until they've answered your questions so it's been a pretty tough year going to the the press conferences certainly at the start of covid do you think the media were asking the right questions i think it was a really tough pandemic to cover for a couple of reasons one is that journalism is dominated by arts graduates arts and humanities graduates we find generally statistics pretty terrifying Two, you know, the same problem that you had all the way through public health, which was that we were kind of quite geared up for a flu pandemic. And therefore, at the beginning, there was just a lot of uncertainty about exactly how bad it was going to get. And at the same time, I think it's really important that you have some room for scepticism. And that's the really difficult story, right? So you've got one hand, you've got all the people arguing about, oh, Sweden's done it best, all this, that, you know, know, all the kind of stuff that we now think of as being slightly trollish. But at the same time, people at the start of this pandemic, like Rory Stewart, who said, just lock everything down now, they were berated for not following the science. You know, like, why are you trying to score points? People who said really early on, 
we should have masks, everyone should wear masks. And the, the WHO guidance took ages to change on, on that. So the problem that you know the media has got is that you've got to remain open-minded and sceptical without, in the words of Nanny Og, being so open-minded your brains fall out. Um, and, and I don't think journalism has necessarily managed to walk that, that line particularly well this year. One of the worst faults of it has been journalists' inability to stop asking two-part questions. Because if you ask a two-part question, you give them the opportunity to only answer half of it. So in the spirit of that, Mickey and I are actually opening with the two-part question. Yep. Yeah, um, I'm playing Robert Peston <laughs> and Hannah is playing the guy from, I don't know, Joe or whatever it was, Lad Bible, who asked the Lad best Bible. questions. Yeah. He asked well, one this, of the better questions, This, this I will year say. Has been the, it's, been the, it's been the rise of Lad Bible. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Without doubt, the biggest story of the year is obviously coronavirus and the ensuing lockdown. The first question that I have, uh, and bear in mind, Mickey is waiting with the second wave question. How <laughs> do you think the government has handled it? Well, okay... I've got to try and rein in my instinct to be like, it's a shit show. And it, it, it has been a, a shit show. Although I think to try and be slightly objective, sorry, I did a little burp there, just in case <laughs> people were wondering. I'm not going to try and style it out. I'm Hancock. I gulped a bit of wine really fast and then it's slightly repeated on me, but we'll just move on. So I do think that the government have really handled it badly i think they handled it very 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 badly at the start they were very slow to sort of acknowledge the scale of what was happening we were super slow into lockdown there was so much confusion you know we let all these big sporting events happen and cheltenham happen and all that kind of thing but if you look at the trajectory of it oh yeah we then had of course opening everything up and instead of doing it in a calm measured you know behave yourselves everybody it was like independence day super saturday freedom saturday and we all just went on a sort of state-sponsored bender over the summer and then of course the cases shot up i think where they have done well is that miraculously we seem to be the first country to have got the vaccine sort of approved and out and i think there is you know some credit and then you look at other countries and we've all kind of ended up in a sort of similar place at the end of the year. You know, the country that we've lauded, Germany, often. So Germany is lauded by people who say, look, this is what a functional government looks like. They had a very good uh, test and trace system. They've gone back into a lockdown. Then the coronavirus sceptics were like, hey, look at Sweden. They were really smart. They didn't do a lockdown. Sweden's having an absolutely horrendous time at the moment as well. So we've all sort of ended up in a similarly shit place, but there's no doubt that the government communications has been absolute Westminster government communications has been terrible. You know, I think Matt Lucas does win the kind of encapsulation of the year in terms of the nonsense of the messaging. But, and this is an important but, messaging and communication can be a bit of a veneer so people are lauding Nicola Sturgeon up in Scotland, saying, oh, my God, she's played a blinder. She's so great. She does these press conferences every day. And she is a very accomplished uh, political communicator. But you look at the kind of raw data in Scotland, they haven't actually performed much better than England. You look at the story of what's happened in Scottish care homes. It's been absolutely horrendous. You know, that they fared no better in terms of schools or universities. So... You know, the government have not covered themselves in glory, but to be fair, I don't think there are really many governments across certainly Europe and America who have really cracked this. 
Sorry, I'm still a little bit in recovery from Helen just very gently muttering that she was overexcited by the thought of Matt Hancock. No, no, I <laughs> yeah, said that, that was Aisha, Aisha was, yes. over, was overexcited. I think, I'm surprised you didn't start crying in tribute to him. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think I probably land with Aisha, because I think the, the, the trouble is it's very easy to be an armchair critic. Although I have, one of my favourite weird memes of this year is the fact that Boris Johnson seems to spend every Prime Minister's question time plaintively asking Keir Starmer why he's not nicer to him and doesn't support him a bit more. You seem to sort of fundamentally miss the role of the leader of the opposition, isn't to sort of go, well, you did very, I know you're working very hard. You must be so upset about all those deaths. No, so, you know, I think it's it, it's fundamentally much easier to be in opposition than it is in government in a crisis like this. The bit that I do find kind of unforgivable is the repeated mistakes that are all the same mistake. I think it's legitimate to make a mistake when you're in an evolving situation like this, which is genuinely uncharted territory. But the government makes the mistake of locking down too late over and over again. Mm-hmm. It did that with a second lockdown. It's on the verge, as we're talking now, of doing the same thing over Christmas. They're saying, well, case rates look really bad, but we can't possibly do anything about it. Someone described it today as the reverse marshmallow test. You know, there's this very famous psychological experiment where you ask children, you tell children they can have one marshmallow now or two marshmallows if they wait. And it's a test to base it about whether or not you believe in delayed gratification. And the trouble is that, that Boris Johnson kind of can't do it the other way around. He can't understand that if he has to take, he can take one painful decision now or a much more painful decision later. Mm-hmm. That's the problem that I'm, I'm having with the government. It's not, you know, I, I think you have to cut them a lot of slack because I'm not sure any, you know, I'm not sure Labour would have done better. As Aisha says, the SNP haven't really done better. The devolved administrations in Northern Ireland and Wales haven't, you know, noticeably outperformed Westminster government. But that, and then the other example being the A-level fiasco, mm. where it was obvious from the Scottish results a week earlier that they were heading into a tailwind, but there was this sort of blithe, no, 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 no that's not going to happen to us. And those bits are a bit worrying, because that's a government that's not learning from its mistakes. I think that's mm. the point. Anyone can make a mistake. The problem is if you're not learning from them. Personally, I don't know. That's an academic's answer, isn't it? Only time will tell whether we've done a good job or not. Too not soon that, to say. Yeah, not that I'm an academic at all. But to your note about messaging, Aisha, I would say that, I mean, I've been a journalist for a long time. It, I try, if I tried to disengage my journalism brain a little bit and imagine me just as an ordinary citizen, just watching those press conferences, and I absolutely in no way felt reassured. The most reassured I felt, and I say this as someone who literally loathes the monarchy but actually the queen made me feel more assured that things might be all right than anything anyone in the government has said which really surprised me yeah i'm on a i don't know sort of basis as well it feels like there's been a lot of messaging that could have been done better i absolutely agree with helen that it's it's this thing of like doing something too late the first time you kind of go okay well genuinely no one knew but they have just repeated their mistakes and that's quite terrifying given that their popularity hasn't super dipped people are still wanting to trust the government because i guess people are still looking for something that feels slightly solid in these really choppy waters but yeah exactly what Aisha said countries that look like they had it under control and were doing a better job are sort of no one knows what this thing does it's already mutating and I think because it's been such a long-running story as just lay people we've become a little bit numb to it so how do they keep stressing this message to be safe how do they enforce it when there's been all these austerity cuts in the past and funding cuts in the past which means there aren't enough police to to look after it now let alone to do it over Christmas when people are going to do whatever they want to do because it's Christmas so yeah I think they have had a really hard job 
but I don't think that they were the best people for the job is kind of where I land on it. I think this, this year has been an interesting lesson in psychology when it kind of comes to news about how you can only fear things that are sort of rare or capricious, you know, because I remember feeling absolutely genuinely sort of terrified at the start of this mm. year. Mm-hmm. And then thinking about the fact that the desk, as the desk really mounted up, that I had this moment of kind of clarity over the summer about the fact that you know people just really wanted stuff to reopen, particularly in America, because obviously I work for an American publication, watching the way that unfolded. And then thinking about the fact that America lives with, you know, gun violence, this insane level of, of gun violence and school shootings. And that's kind of just like a shrug. Like if you suddenly, if you overnight switched Britain to the level of gun violence that there is in America, we'd freak out completely. But it's the kind of boiling frog thing of getting used to it. Mm. You know, the same thing I think when you're trying to write stories about domestic violence. You know, it's just, it's just an extraordinary financial and to, you know and toll in terms of lives. But it's impossible to get anybody interested in it by and large because it's just always happened, and the assumption is it will always happen. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big stories of the pandemic is that it's bizarrely become less frightening as it's killed more people because it's it's becoming sort of a background hum. And I think that that's that's really going to affect as we go into the, you know, I'm expecting it to take a good couple of months, if not a year for full vaccine rollout. It's going to be interesting to see how people cope with that pressure to start reopening, which I think is going to intensify. I don't know. I've been trying not to make predictions. You know, I think there are lots of people who are still absolutely terrified. But the, but I, I worry we end up in a situation where there's a real split down the middle in the country and half the people are oh, desperate I, for it to reopen and half the people are still terrified to go out. I completely agree with that. I think COVID is the new Brexit. At the beginning, we were all in it together because we were totally shit scared. Like, it was frightening. It was new. It was like something out of that film, Contagion. I mean, it, genu- it was all Gwyneth Paltrow's fault. Like, it was all kind <laughs> of... This is awful. But I think Helen is, is completely right it's amazing how quickly your psychology can just get used to hearing horrible death statistics read out every day you remember when those pictures of what was happening in Italy when the hospitals Mm. were filling up and they were having to sort of move the bodies and it was all really sort of dramatic and everybody was like god that is so awful and then we ended up having pictures weren't as dramatic but the, the death toll is really high like we have got the highest death toll in in Europe Yet we do have a fatigue about it. I mm. read out on my show, on you know the radio, every Saturday and Sunday, the figures. And the figures are really high. And the deaths are really high. But it, it feels glib now. Like, nobody really, really cares about it. Now, if that number of people had died in an accident one mm. day, you know, it would dominate the news for, like, weeks or, in, mm. or you know, a terrorist attack or, or something like that. But what is so interesting is how polarised people have become about it and you know the number of people who I've sort of had to debate with who on the one hand are completely against lockdown I just find the values thing so weird they're the people who lionize older people and quite Mm. rightly you know you should care about old people in society but they have this patriotic these are the people they're the backbone of Britain they fought in the war until it comes to protecting them from covid and then it's like listen they've had a good innings and uh, (laughs) you know and it's really important that like i go to the pub like that is the most important thing and then Mm. these people are desperate for this hell to be over yet they're skeptical about the vaccine and they won't take the vaccine either Mm. and i just feel like we're entering into this brexit position where like we're so polarized on the rights and wrongs of of how to deal with with covid I wasn't ready for a new Brexit because we haven't dealt with the old Brexit yet. 
<laughs> we didn't need a new yeah. one. This is like the mutant son of Brexit. Yeah. Hmm? Horrific. So, yeah, I guess what I would like to know is during all of this, and I did love that Helen called it uncharted waters rather than unprecedented times. It was just really refreshing to hear it put slightly differently. But what have you learned about Britain? I mean, most of the things that I've learned, I think, have been good things. You know, so I live in Lewisham in South London and there's a mutual aid society and there's a food bank that runs opposite the hospital. And in their hand, there has genuinely been quite a lot of community spirit. Although I say that, but then the other big thing that's happened in Lewisham is low traffic neighbourhoods. To wet the new Brexit, you think people are angry about Brexit. You want to see how angry people are about low traffic neighbourhoods. It's off the hook. Um, <laughs> but I also think there's what, a less danger of... to children. Less danger to no, children makes them angry. Every every low traffic neighbourhood, which has got stuff closed off, obviously has people annoyed they can't take their cars down it, and therefore those cars are going somewhere else. So some other people are now living in right. high traffic neighbourhoods by by comparison. So it's like one of those things that, like planning laws, just are one of the things that most drives people up the wall. Right, it's like traffic like, spanks. No... Like you you can yeah, the fat has to go somewhere. The yeah. cars have to go somewhere. Exactly. If you're living in the muffin top, you're not happy. <laughs> um, anyway, it's kind of reassuring that people have gone back to being angry about low traffic neighbourhoods because that's like a sort of manageable size of problem rather than the kind of huge, overwhelming <laughs> existential dread that we all had at the start of the year. And the same thing about, you know, the, the vaccine race has just filled me with hope. Um, so I'm writing this, my second book at the moment, which is about genius and kind of trying to deconstruct that myth of the solitary genius. And modern science really is the absolute pinnacle of, of smashing up that kind of great man theory of history. It's so much about collaboration particularly across mm-hmm. borders researchers sharing stuff you know the vaccine prototypes for some of the vaccines were, were ready pretty much like the weekend after they'd identified the dna sequence of the virus simply wow. because it's like, like it's off the shelf ready to get and the rest of the time is taken up when we're designing clinical trials and, and conducting them you know we we have now got this for all that the information architecture of the world sometimes leads to people being mean to me on twitter and therefore i'm against it <laughs> it does have some really really massive upsides too so I don't entirely end this year in a pit of despair, which is nice. That's interesting, isn't it? Because at the start of this, I kept seeing people referring to the AIDS pandemic and what held up the process of identifying what AIDS was and trying to literally isolate the virus was the fact that the French and the Americans wouldn't work together because they mm. both wanted the chance of winning a Nobel Prize, basically. Oh, so interesting well there is a big revolt among scientists about the fact that only three people can be named on any nobel prize and it's again it's like it's just not a really a reflection of how science works now i mean never i mean i can see why people get hung up on it. i just really about marie curie who i don't know if you know the story notoriously got was nearly left off the citation for the 1905 nobel prize in physics because they wanted pierre curie and Henri becquerel and someone just sort of forgot to nominate her and pierre curie had to write to the nobel institute and go She's actually quite important to to all this. Uh, wow. She's going to put it out there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but so so I can see why the, the search for credit becomes incredibly important because it does lead to more funding, it leads to more prestige or whatever. But unfortunately, that is a it is a really poor reflection on the process of modern modern science. It just doesn't. It's not about like lone geniuses in labs. It's about really really smart people talking to loads of other really really smart people. Yeah, And also, I think one of the other things that I was really struck by with the um, vaccine stuff, which is, you know, having rejected experts for the best part of like four and a half years, something <laughs> like, we are really, really fond of experts. <laughs> like, we love an expert. Yeah. But the other people who I think were slightly missed out were all the people that volunteered, like all the people who came forward and said, yeah, like you can 
jab this weird thing into me and it might make me really ill or I just I was actually quite moved at like how many people stepped forward obviously I didn't but I was moved at other people <laughs> step forward I thought that that for me was quite sort of life affirming and also I think the thing at the beginning of the lockdown was that I did feel that real panic and it is because I keep referring to Contagion but it was the most <laughs> stressful film I've ever watched <laughs> in yeah. my entire life did you watch it pre-pandemic yes i watched it pre-pandemic like right as the right as the pandemic was like kind of oh, did we? that's when we watched it <laughs> it was so frightening wasn't it literally I... we watched we watched it in february for this thing we we used to do about disaster films and we watched it and a week later we, we made a joke then, at the time going oh yeah, there's that weird chinese, there's that weird chinese virus coming and then literally a week later we were like it was it was just so frightening it was so so frightening and also the bit that i was most disturbed about was you know when like everyone goes mad and like civil society breaks down and everyone's looting the supermarkets and stuff so and then we had the great bog roll run and things like that so i was like shit just got real literally because i'm going to toilet roll like this is terrible but what was actually really dead nice was that people didn't do that and there was actually this there was like a really nice sense of community and like people did get to know their neighbors and people you know all the people that volunteered to sort of help people get their medicines and get some food if they got ill and things I actually thought that was very very nice so I did think that actually a sense of community did emerge and also I was probably quite surprised at how compliant the British public were because Mm. apart from like a small number of like twats people did by and large kind of try their best to stick by the rules like they did take it seriously and I I was quite surprised by that because at the beginning I just thought there's no way I mean you're seriously going to take away everyone's civil liberties and they're not allowed to Mm. leave the house and actually most people were you know compliant and did think about the sort of greater good so I thought that was um I thought that was quite a positive thing and the other thing we learned is that we just love eating and drinking like that is our default position yeah. on everything basically like you know at the beginning when everyone was trying to get into their dual wicks and at the end everybody was literally diabetic and alcoholic and <laughs> sort of just like clinically obese like that is that is the other thing that I did quite like it was quite reassuring that that is sort of who we are at our core not that we yeah. have a core anymore it's layered in subcutaneous <laughs> you know. yeah. Hannah what about you what did you learn about the British we're just a really weird bunch, aren't we? I mean, the idea that we are one cohesive bunch of people, which are clearly we're not. Um, because on the one hand, yes, all of those positive things that you said. But on the other hand, village Facebook pages, you know, oh, they weren't out doing their clapping. And I've got a lot of friends who are on their village Facebook pages and I make them send me the best things that I did in <laughs> lockdown. The sort of public shaming that happened on things like you know some guy's got 16 toilet rolls in his basket and people are taking photographs of it and putting it on twitter there is a sort of an element in which we're all in it together and then suddenly people turn and i was interested in that that point there were points where we were dangerously near a mob and then we sort of came back from it a bit so yeah people are weird i think is the thing i've learned <laughs> although i suspect i knew it anyway mickey 
Yeah, I, I mean, I noted down the community. There was definitely a lot of community spirit around where I am, which is South East London. Noned Rocks started up and that was just like making sure people got food and people who couldn't afford food got money to get food and their medication and all of that stuff. And that was really lovely. I also learned that maybe the British aren't as robust as the tea towels would have us believe, you know, with that keep calm and carry on. It was quite a lot of don't keep calm, go into a massive panic. And I think small mindedness came to the fore, but probably mostly on stuff like Twitter, which obviously you have to remind yourself isn't necessarily what the whole population is acting like. So, yeah, I guess I just learned that we're really contradictory, but that's just people in it. Yeah. So second biggest story of the year. I think, has been what some people call the culture war and some people don't believe even as a thing. Personally, I don't think you can deny that every aspect of life is currently being politicised, put through the political grinder and comes out either labelled left-wing or right-wing. Wearing a mask is now left-wing. Believing in freedom of speech is now right-wing. I'm curious to know what you make of this sort of mass politicisation of everything and what you think it suggests about where we might be heading. <sighs> right, well, I mean, I think the problem is my feeling about most of the, these things is that it's most interesting to look at the architecture and economics that supports it and the incentive structures. And actually, really, a lot of it comes down to either politicians or activists deciding that if they can appoint themselves the leader of a charge against something or for something, that actually has very good personal consequences for them. I'm afraid I take a brutally cynical view of it which is that some of it might be driven by high-minded noble principles but a lot of it's driven by people who just want attention and you know and I think that applies to particularly to politicians also it's just you know it's fundamentally I mean Aisha and I go back a long way and we were both veterans of like in my case covering in your case Aisha being involved with the 2015 election campaign trying to talk about you know mild criticisms of capitalism like you know something that's a sort of fundamental economic policy you know ch- some things like childcare provision that kind of stuff it's just really tough it's it's boring it's hard it changes really slowly wouldn't you rather have an argument about singing some song at the proms and and then a lot of this stuff really exists to give columnists something to write about when they don't really have any deep knowledge of stuff and and, and they've got a deadline in three hours and and so i think a lot of it can be traced back to the kind of the economics of, of news and just the huge amount of time and information there is to fill and also to the the architecture of things like facebook where an angry emotive post gets far more engagement than someone going you know i've had a look at this election i really i can see merits on both sides you know that that just no one or no one wants that so we've built this whole ecosystem in which the you know the the survival of the fittest is piers morgan and you know his analogues and other parts of the political sphere so in a way my take on this is always piers morgan is a is a leopard and and if he if he eats your face that's you know that's just what leopards do the point about it is do you want to create an environment in which being a leopard is a you know is a is a win condition i've used this is all just a soup of metaphors i just do <laughs> not know what has happened to me lost the ability to speak 
All I say is that what I love about that is leopard print is now like a new neutral and like Piers Morgan is so far from, from wow, ever being. Wow, I can't believe that left-wing comedian Aisha jokes about turning Piers Morgan into a coat. That's so typical of the, what about the tolerant left, Aisha? So much for the... she, wants to, she wants to skin him alive. <laughs> Bloodthirsty but... has a Rika rift about his... Playing life. Piers Morgan and wearing his skin. Yeah. I'm disgusted. I'm disgusted. But that, that's I'm just exactly cancelling kind of myself right about, now. Is the fact that, you know, there's what happens is someone says something. There's a line in Michael Ignatius' brilliant book called Fire and Ashes, which is about his, um, he weren't being a journalist to running for election in Canada very unsuccessfully. And he talks about entering a world of lunatic literal mindedness when you enter politics. Just when people, when you say something like, you know, you make a lighthearted joke and people just instantly say, oh, you hate babies, do you? Or like, whatever it might be. <laughs> and that's, I think, the world that everybody now feels that they're living in. If they spend any time particularly on online in those big spaces, is there's always somebody ready with the bad faith misinterpretation because it suits them. They get points, you know, they fire up their supporters for doing it. So, you know, my suggested reforms to it all are, are all structural because I don't think you can stop people being people. And if they get attention and reward... (laughs) Oh, okay. Hannah Dunleavy comes out against people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be 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 honest, Helen, that's 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 pretty much out there. Just like a sociopath, Hannah. Wow. Don't listen to the woman wearing a man's skin. (laughs) (laughs) It's a neutral. (laughs) Sorry, Helen, I interrupted. No, no that, I mean, I could talk about this for forever because it preoccupies me and at the same time was wishing that I could have, you know, bits of my brain back that I used to use for, I presume, other more interesting stuff. And I always have my corrective about the fact, of, does this feel like the world that lots of other people live in or is this a world that you can opt out of if you don't follow the news, follow social media so aggressively? I'm not sure entirely it is. I was watching, don't judge me, I was watching Full Monty on Ice, great programme this week, <laughs> in which a lot of people stripped Helen. On, on, on ice. And for charity, Aisha, that was for charity, for cancer. Helen. <laughs> but, like, these guys from Love Island were all talking, this young guy was talking about how the fact he had, like, two hair transplants and he'd had his teeth capped, which he thought was a bit much, because now, now when he looked in the mirror, he surprised himself. <laughs> <laughs> Just, like, you've overdone your teeth whitening. But, you know, and that was just the kind of side effect of just being on Instagram all the time. I, d- I wouldn't like to be a teenager now and having to take, you know, school home and, and all the cliqueiness of that home through social media. I think that's really tough. And I don't think it is just journalists, although obviously I live in a hyper version of that world. But it's like, I think it's been on the cards for a while, hasn't it? It's like plastic surgery. You see someone who's had a little bit of work and then that shifts what their reality looks like, particularly somewhere like LA or Hollywood where everyone's had a little bit of work. So then you need to look a little bit better in inverted commas and a little bit better in inverted commas. And then you end up looking like one of those cats from a medieval painting, but you think it's gorgeous. Or Nicole Kidman, yeah. I'm not seeing anything. I'm not seeing anything because I've just turned 45 and I've started Googling Botox. So I'm not seeing... I'm hoping I can get my vaccine done at the same time as I get my Botox done. Like yeah. that is like, but I do think like I so I mean as I mean Helen and I agree on a lot of of stuff, but I do think that people always say that oh cancel culture sort of doesn't exist, and it it will clearly it, like it does. And just because you then can say oh I'm going to give a TV or radio interview about how I got cancelled, that, that does not negate the fact that you have been cancelled. Mm. However. The, the really difficult thing about the cancel culture stuff is I think it's become a proxy because the left have been really bad at politics for such a long time and traditional politics and 
winning power and people on that side have now found almost like a new a new power structure that they want to try and and win at so this is i think become like the kind of new political arena and social media has sort of become the new public space for i think a lot of very frustrated people on the left but it isn't just frustrated people on the left it's frustrated people on the hard left and it's frustrated people on the hard right as well and they have come together in this perfect union of like clinical insanity on the the internet there is a, a sort of it's like a venn diagram of hell and they are just as helen said they feast off just cancelling each other mm. and attacking each other on a regular basis it's the sort of a trump it's the trumpification of of british politics the culture wars from america have come over here what has troubled me so much about it is that it has actually kind of started to seep into and infect whether whether you want to call it mainstream politics or whatever the thing is and and actually it's not just the left the right take a big responsibility boris johnson has absolutely leaned into the culture wars one of the reasons he wrote that ridiculous piece about muslim women looking like kind of robbers and letterboxes and all that stuff that was an absolute culture war dog whistle to pave the way for the fact that he was like gearing up for a leadership challenge you have seen number 10 under dominic cummings go after these mad culture war things i was really struck in the last couple of weeks oliver dowden the culture secretary at a time when like literally arts and theater are going down the toilet his big thing is has to have a row over the crown and whether we should put the fact that it's like a piece of, of, of fiction and of course you've had four years of jeremy corbyn in the labor party who absolutely Absolutely fused mainstream politics with the kind of you know mad culture wars as well now with anything there is of course a kernel of truth in the genesis of any of the culture wars that are going on at, at any one time but i think helen is right i think people stoke these culture wars not to actually achieve real lasting change structural systemic change to make things better they stoke these wars for personal gain whether it's commercial gain whether it's to get a book deal to elevate their own personal platform or to try and get purchased for their cause there's so many people that claim to hate cancel culture yet cancel culture is the thing that gives them life it gives them the oxygen mm. of publicity and just like what i've been wanging but one of the things that i found so interesting this week like in the last sort of seven eight days we've had two really horrendous stories about maternity we've had that report out into all yeah. the horrible ignored travesties in maternity women dying babies dying you also have the situation where lockdown has been basically decided by men and women are only now allowed to take their partners in i mean just absolutely horrendous yet the culture wars around women are nothing to do with actually making life better on these really really important metrics i absolutely agree because i i would argue that a lot of the culture war that has gone on about the issue of racism has done nothing to tackle serious problems with racism i saw a wonderful tweet on twitter in which a, a, a woman had tweeted i was holding a sign that said i can't breathe not remove episodes of 30 rock from you know streaming services there are bigger problems and the the small stuff 
because I mean it's so ridiculous that the idea that if you admit that cancel culture exists that 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 means that you're right wing I heard Camille Foster who is a, a black libertarian thinker who I don't always agree with by any stretch of the imagination but I respect his opinion I know it's revolutionary it'll never catch on what? Um, was that, was that where's the cancel button where's the cancel button right now but he said something really interesting I, I thought in which he said when we talk about cancel culture all we do is concentrate on the word cancel and the word we should be concentrating on is culture that this is something that is embedded in the way we are dealing with each other at the moment. And to argue whether someone having a column removed from them or whatever falls into the remit of cancel culture just makes it about 37 different individual rows rather than one big question of, is this any way to communicate as grown-ups, in fact? Well, the really odd thing is that it's always seen as a kind of intra-left argument, right? And that's, you know, probably because of the places where it, it most gets discussed. But there is absolutely a version of council culture happening right now in the US Republican Party. Fox News's ratings have fallen since the election because it has accepted that Joe Biden won, whereas mm-hmm. Newsmax and, and another channel called One America Network news network have, have both been saying no no there's still a way you could win there's still a way you could win like, and that's the narrative that people want to hear and so what you've ended up is this situation that you know anybody who says the truth which is that joe biden won the election gets cancelled republican senators are too afraid to say it it is exactly the same mechanism that were it happening on the left we would call mm. it cancel culture because what's happened is that anyone who speaks out from whatever the prevailing orthodoxy is essentially the way i always think about it now is is it's, it's blasphemy we're talking about quasi-religious you know yeah. you've sinned against the great concept that whatever the evidence is we know donald trump is the anointed president and that's the holy truth and and if, if you speak out against that, then you you know, you get a primary challenger, you get your funding taken away and your donors taken away, you get, you know, called out on Twitter by by Trump, who called two Georgia senators, you know, traitors. They're probably those guys are getting death threats as we speak. That is exactly the kind of the same thing as cancel culture. And just because those people aren't losing their jobs, this is the what I should be saying, this is the dumbass uh, as like, oh, unless someone literally is never heard from again, we can't yeah. say that they've been cancelled. Yeah. Well, no, because what we're talking about is not individual effects, but we're talking about group effects. If you see someone lose their job for expressing a fairly mainstream opinion, that is a chilling effect on everybody else. Even if they haven't literally been sent to a gulag, the next person is going to think very carefully about whether or not it's worth their while to express that opinion. Yeah. I just don't understand how this is hard. And yet, again, it's one of those things where maybe it's in a lot of people's interests just because they don't want to dunk. Like, it's a dunk It's a dunk level thing. Like, oh, if you've been cancelled, why, why are you still tweeting? And it's it's a thought-stopping kind of cliche, I guess. And it's really it's really boring, isn't it, to hear or to see every time someone says, oh, I've been silenced on this subject, to go, oh, 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 she's been silenced from a column in these various newspapers where someone's done one interview and then the newspapers have picked them up. They've not been silenced. Helen does a brilliant newsletter each week called The Blue Stocking, and she linked to a great piece from Tom Chivitz. I can't remember where it was. Was it, it was an unheard. Yeah, it was mm. really interesting because it was saying that essentially like the Salman Rushdie example being the kind of er yeah. example of it. Salman Rushdie went on after the Ayatollah um, Khomeini. Yeah, that's the right one. Amazing. Declared, a, a, yeah, we, yeah, a, a, a fatwa against him um, to write several more no- novels. But he did have to live under police protection. And a lot of yeah. people thought very carefully about what they would say on the subject of, um, of Islam. And again, like that is a kind of classic... <laughs> probably when I was saying this about an Ayatollah but like he was playing to his base right at a time when (laughs) things were a bit sketchy for him it was kind of like someone doing a super dunky tweet but like that fatwa was a kind of super dunky tweet 
I am going to get in trouble for saying that, aren't I? But it's true. It it's was. You just like, cancelled yeah. yourself, um, Helen. Yeah, yeah, we, literally, might, we might have literally. invited experts back into the field, but we certainly don't want any of your facts. None of them. <laughs> <laughs> but that is an interesting point because that whole thing about the fat, nobody knew what a fat war was before, you know, in Glasgow, it was like fat shaming someone, basically. You know, <laughs> nobody, nobody knew. But I do remember, like, I did a documentary. This was like, God, this was years ago. This must have been in about, Gosh, like 2008 or 2009, and it was called, it was commissioned by the BBC Religious Unit, and it was called The Funny Thing About Ramadan, and it was meant to be me as a completely kind of crap Muslim learning about my own faith. And my mum and dad were convinced I was going to have a fatwa, like, put on me because of Salmon Rushdie. <laughs> like, they were just like, oh, my God, like, don't be Salmon Rushdie. I'm like, I'm not even... She, my mum's like, you're like a less successful um, version of Salmon Rushdie. And I was like, thanks, mum. What that... you've always wanted. You put that in your Twitter bio. But that's true. But, like, <laughs> you're right. Because actually what happened was that the Ayatollah became instantly the most famous Muslim leader in the world, right? Plenty of Muslim-majority countries practising very moderate forms of Islam... And you weren't hearing about them. You were hearing about one extremely thunderous bloke with a beard. Like, it had worked very well for him. Yeah. But I think the the great tragedy about this, the just the hyper-polarised world we live in, and this is why social media is just so... I mean, you can't you can't put the genie back in, in the bottle, but it has also, I think, collided with this sense of, even pre-lockdown, people feeling quite isolated and kind of lonely and then people coming finding a bit of what they think is a tribe on social media so it sort of provides a kind of a full sense of camaraderie and comfort and kinship and then you're in a gang and then and everything is just like you have to as as helen said it's sort of like a sort of it's kind of faith it's like a sort of there's an article of faith and if you diverge from from that faith then you know you're out and it's all very very brutal but what the tragedy is is as i said there's often a very legitimate kernel of truth in the basis of a lot of these culture wars and those important issues are not really getting discussed in the the most important way like take the argument about um pulling down statues i genuinely as a ethnic minority person who is very very shock horror against racism i don't think most people in the country particularly from sort of you know my asian community or whatever is like let's go around like tearing statues down what we do want to have a, is a really serious discussion about why when you go to a newsroom or a boardroom or into parliament or any bit of society which has got power and influence it's basically white people you know still mm-hmm. running the you know those things of lack of opportunity fair level playing field influence you know power power structures all of that kind of thing all of that just masks it's so much easier for the government particularly the government we have now to just get really down in the dirt on culture war issues like tearing down statues or cancelling you know mandela or gandhi or churchill than it is to actually be pinned down on the really really important things that I, that matter i think almost entirely the same with uh, big business and that's been one of my real bet noirs all year is how the ability for a company to say something which puts it on the right side of history i mean all of this is in these things um <laughs> it, it can sort of throw a veneer of respectability over itself where you get amazon with a big strip across it all summer that says we gave 10 million dollars to black lives matter 
And what I want for them to do is to pay their fucking staff properly, to give them rights, to give them toilet breaks. I don't think Bezos is a good guy. And if what we're doing is we're saying if any company that supports, for example, feminism or LGBT rights or whatever becomes one of us, you're kind of letting them off the hook. But all oh, the no, other I completely, stuff that they're doing. I completely agree. Like my favorite, probably the favorite piece I wrote this year was a piece that was about exactly that, which is about I kind of, I, I know this is a very um, contested word, but it's a useful one in this context, I think, which is that the phenomenon of woke capitalism, which is the kind of just picking up those kind of baubles to hang off yourself. The one I think the Amazon example is a is a brilliant one actually. Like I just just pay pay a, a normal commercial mm. tax rate, that's fine. The other one that got me was that. Um, BAE Systems, the arms dealer, is a Stonewall diversity champion. <laughs> At the same time as supplying arms to, you know, to, to theocracies, and it's that to me was the perfect encapsulation of it. It's like you, you know, um, you're going to sponsor a pride parade at the same time as helping prop up regimes that murder gay people, and like it's just the kind of, the, the, yeah. I, I just. But that's but that's so. And I, what annoys me most is that people get taken in by it, and they think that these corporations are their friend, and they're yeah. not. And and I don't. I know I'm not an anti-capitalist uh, by any stretch, but they're there to maximise shareholder value or whatever their corporate aim is. They're not there to make the world a better place by and large. There are very few social, you know, socially conscious businesses that I would say really are like that. Like the Timpson family business, I think is absolutely incredible. But like Amazon is not your friend. It's not left wing. It's it's in favour of the continued success of amazon and if it involves saying some left-wing things and that's what it's going to do it's absolutely not, mm-hmm. it's not it's, on it's, your side the story the story that emerged about um what went on at random house penguin when they tried to publish jordan peterson again uh, please, I don't, found, please do I, not trigger me you know, <laughs> I, I found I, I found the one the most not even eye-opening as was that one of the people that they interviewed the members of staff said they they put us through like training you know racial diversity training and we've had all of that and then they published Jordan Peterson and it makes it look like what they were doing before was entirely performative and I said to Mickey I've been saying that all fucking summer why hasn't anybody been listening to me it is performative when they do these things well my favorite is like the the thing that I think has just become like a bit of a total joke now is all the international women's day which has kind of become like a sort of corporate festival of um loads of conferences and you know how to empower yourself and then you look into how many women they have on their board what their gender pay gap is and it's just absolutely shocking but you know everyone is there for the conference and it's all like you know selfies and hashtags and gift bags and you know it's just like you know we need to and again social media social media has made campaigning feel very easy as well um because all you have to do is you can just do it it's all it's in the palm of your hand with your fingertips you can post a selfie or start like piling on to somebody or and that's like mm. job done where it's not and this is something Helen and I have Helen and I have talked about a lot mm. if you want to change things it is long and boring and hard and arduous and does you do not get a lot of gratification sometimes you never get any gratification because your work may never ever come to anything but that's so far away from the this like the instant hit the dopamine hit of oh i've campaigned really hard today on social media yeah and i think it goes back to that tribal thing you talked about earlier aisha it's comforting to be part of a tribe and to feel like you're understood and you belong and therefore 
actually rather than making any change for you to look better in that tribe you just point out someone who's not doing it as well or has made one mistake and start this weird purity spiral that makes your tribe think that you're better than everyone else and it's it's tearing good things apart I think it's incredibly damaging and we've also got this like I don't know if the ad hominem fallacy has ever been bigger, then it doesn't matter what you're saying. If you've liked someone's tweet four years ago, then that will be what people are arguing about rather than the, the, the fact or the argument that you're putting forward at the time. And it just, it stifles debate as well, which is really dangerous. I mean, the interesting thing about this conversation is so interesting, but I'm already feeling slightly anxious. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll move on to another question. <laughs> it must be hot in that Piers Morgan coat. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah there's a very thick skin. <laughs> he really does. He's more like a rhino than a leopard. Um, no, but this is why I think people are so into two things, which is one, in media terms, your podcasts have been big for a couple of years now, and now newsletters are becoming really big as well. And it's because they've got a proper bounded audience. They're kind of antiviral to some mm. extent, right? Like, uh, there's this great phrase, it's called context collapse, which is the idea that you just don't you know make a distinction what's something that would be appropriate for me to say to you now would not be probably appropriate for me to make as a joke to my mother or to say in my you know next all hands meeting at work like we have different registers for different occasions and the internet has completely kind of collapsed all that and what podcasts and, and newsletters have done and paywalled um newspapers as well is restored that to a kind of bounded community of people with the same values and limits and boundaries to their speech and so what I'm trying to say is I used to, I've been in a lot of trouble through social media in my life. I don't think I've ever got in trouble. Oh, no, I got in trouble once on the thing I said on a podcast because they clipped it and put it in a video and people still take the piss at me now. <laughs> but that, apart from that, as long as you don't video clip bits of it, you could say, if you've got, like, just get it off your, you know, get it off your chest. Everything you've ever thought about Jeremy Corbyn, the Israel-Palestine <laughs> conflict, just <laughs> absolutely nuts. You, I probably don't really hold back on Jeremy Corbyn. To be <laughs> I will say you can get in trouble for something that you put in a newsletter, though, Helen, because what you said about the Queen's Gambit was oh. entirely wrong. <gasps> what did As she I say? You, she said that that was not a good look, that a leather coat and a cowboy hat was not a good look, and I disagree. I'm well, sorry, but it's because, yeah, because he looked like he was like a 12-year-old in a cowboy hat, like, sort of dressed like oh. Woody from Toy Story. I would like to know what news story has epitomised 2020 for you? I always think it's a big news story when you like wake people up to tell them. Um, <laughs> and my other half woke me up to tell me that Donald Trump had got coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I went, what the? Like uh, that American election campaign was just insane. Like, the, and, and so many things happening during, you know, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was another moment where I just started getting actual text messages from people about, oh my, you know, this is so high stakes. So that to me is the, the news story of the year because it was such a, you know, it's such a savage indictment. I, I mean, I know this is a hostage to fortune, but it's very noticeable to me that the world leaders who've got coronavirus are <laughs> Boris Johnson, Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, Donald Trump. I would bet any money that Duterte of the Philippines has probably had it. And yet, you know, you're kind of Jacinda Ardern's and Angela Merkel's. And actually, I don't think Vladimir Putin's had it on the basis that he's a very competent authoritarian. Mm. Um, <laughs> Trudeau got it, didn't he? 
Did he? Okay, that's yeah. so that's one world's in the leading eye, feminist like, Justin Trudeau. World's leading feminist Justin Trudeau. He was Trudeau. probably yeah, um, you know. Is he blacked um, up at this point? <laughs> like... Probably in the in the yeah in the boot polish. He unfortunately, <laughs> but yeah, but you know what I mean. It just it was one of those things where it was like, well, of course you've got coronavirus because this is the point in the story at which you know the scriptwriters yeah. would go, let's up the stakes by yeah. doing this, and that, that whole news story was just so insane. And it's so interesting to me that. You know, Trump has obviously been contesting the results ever since they came in, but something just sort of snapped, and and he's obviously got his base, but he just feels so irrelevant to some extent already. And that doesn't mean he's not dangerous, and what he's been trying to do isn't dangerous. But they're just—I want—it was a kind of like a fever breaking, really. The end of that presidential election was like someone with an incredibly high temperature just hallucinating more and more extravagantly weird stuff. And the last couple of weeks, by contrast, have felt a bit more like, oh, right, this is what politics used to be like before yeah. the, you know, the nut bar show came along. <laughs> Aisha, what about you? What story from the news sums up 2020 for you? So my favourite story of the year was Chris Greeling missing out on being the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee when he failed to notice <laughs> a, a coup against him. <laughs> and it went to uh, the Tory MP Julian Lewis. I just loved that story so, so much. It just had like everything about it was so brilliant because A, it was Chris Grayling and B, how could you be like leading the spooks when you couldn't even notice this massive like sort of plot against you? I just, I just loved it. It just actually made me quite fond of Chris Grayling like it just made yeah. me just think this guy's just such a pudding like just such a complete idiot <laughs> that just I just felt I was such a 2020 story but I, I just think the big story of the I mean there's the two big stories of the obviously coronavirus but for, I just felt like the the Trump stuff was so amazing because I actually did not believe that he would lose neither did he yeah still thinks he's won but I just I genuinely just thought uh, partly because of what we've just all been talking about the culture war stuff I just felt that you know America was just so far down this like horrible horrible dark path that there was just no way that Joe Biden having been you know decided as a bond quite late and and for all the you know for lots of kind of different reasons so I, I it was just such an astonishing moment like it was just such a huge moment but didn't you think I mean I my big lesson of that was that Joe Biden won by sort of ignoring the culture wars you know he ran a very oh, deliberately old-fashioned centrist mm. campaign where he just sort of said wouldn't you like it if everyone just was got along and we all everyone had, nice had a soda pop and sat down together and and his campaign manager said quite you know we we deliberately we ignored twitter you know he yeah. was he, he yeah. and actually what's really interesting now is that his picks for his cabinet you know so P pete Buttigieg, for example at tra going, going to transform will be the first if confirmed by the senate first cabinet gay cabinet openly gay cabinet member to get a senate confirmation which will be you know an extraordinary advance for lgbt yeah. rights but that's done by a boring old white guy saying boring things and it kind of it gave me my confirmation what i had been thinking already for some time about about cultural stuff which is we should just what if we just ignored it like today on yeah. twitter and my entire twitter was full of people making jokes about paul joseph watson also known as prison planet of infowars and my main contact with that guy who is a strange right-wing guy lives in his basement and sells brain force pills is through people dunking on him and like at some point the left has got to give up amplifying the other yeah, side yeah 
and giving them free free oxygen and get on and just do like as Aisha was talking you know that maternity scandal is absolutely incredible to me and and and, it, and there will be I'm sure it will come out in the wash of things of this year where people have lost babies because they didn't have anyone to advocate for them they were in the middle of an incredibly long traumatic labour you know the, the ward was incredibly overstretched you know all those avoidable errors that we know pile up and just doing that stuff where you find out stuff that's happening I like I, I really it made me want to report more and, and have fewer opinions well yeah and I think that that is such that's so important you know I think so many news organizations I don't think news organizations have covered themselves in glory um you know over the last kind of few years in terms of fueling the the, the culture war and just the lack of original reporting because the, the the business model is really tough for lots of news organizations just scraping the web is just inc- that is really having a really toxic broader effect on our discourse and our democracy and like nothing does nothing makes up for that kind of old-fashioned type of reporting and researching i mean look at the person who you know the Windrush scandal was probably the the most kind of sharp arresting sober evidence that Britain is not a post-racial country there are still massive Mm -hmm. amounts of systemic and structural institutional racism in this country and it was Amelia Gentleman who just chipped and chipped and chipped away at that story without just being a sort of loudmouth on Twitter just actually went and, and did really old fashioned reporting and and journalism and I think that there is just, I think people are kind of really looking for that would really like to see a bit more of that Yeah yeah. Hannah what about you, what news story summed up 2020 for you? I think it's either Lawrence Fox starting his own political party <laughs> or it's Owen Jones starting his own media organisation which I see very much as different sides of the same coin, if I'm honest. I <laughs> um, feel like they both sort of sum up the everybody's, hey, I'm an expert in this now, particularly Lawrence Fox. What on earth makes Lawrence Fox think that he's the man to run a political party is beyond me, absolutely beyond me. I just feel a bit sad about Lawrence Fox. I just, uh, you know what I mean? And I, I know this is me doing armchair psychoanalysis, but I just sort of think this is a guy who's going through a pretty rough, patch in his life and he's just found a way to get some attention and some validation in the same way that people heckle at comedy shows in in the sure knowledge that they're going to be shot down but still like it will be a brief acknowledgement of their existence and I just think again the kind of kindest thing that everyone could do is just go sounds lovely Lawrence have a lovely you know have a lovely (laughs) time with you good luck with it do stand in some elections like you know and just and didn't try and crack down on it I know this is such a hard argument to make and maybe I see you pick me up on this but you know what I mean when people are sort of peddling those kind of look at me I'm being so pressed for telling the truth on race kind of things then actually they're sort of inviting people to kind of come and oppress them because that's that's what they need to to build their fan base I I don't know I I mean it's it, it feels wrong to ignore it but part of me really just think we should I mean, I think I've got some sympathy with that because he is just the world's big biggest attention seeker. But as a, a person of colour, I have to say, I I was so like genuinely upset by what the stuff he has said and the fact that he is. It isn't just the fact that he is just some kind of cranky 
washed out actor who's trying to desperately to look for some way to be sort of relevant again he is stimulating a really kind of quite frightening strain of overt racism that I thought I had left behind you know when I turned 20 you know he is absolutely sending a signal to you know that horrible pedestrian level of of racism I mean I've literally just watched him respeat people and yes some people have you know gone for the bait but it's still it's still like a horrible thing to to watch mm. and it's still very very upsetting and I think it is causing just a lot of really if you're a person of color it is particularly my, my 45 I am genuinely horrified that this type of thing is back like I genuinely thought that we had left those days behind where you would have some kind of insane white guy going well who stopped slavery who stopped slavery and it's like what the fuck like actually what the fuck and also his thing all about defunding the BBC is just so ridiculous because the BBC made him a star the idea that he basically his argument is that you don't hear any alternative views on the BBC the BBC literally made him he Mm. gave him his second act yeah yeah, yeah. It's I so do tough, take Helen's point. It is, it yeah. is, it's annoying to give him the publicity, but I do think, you know, he on a daily basis causes just so much hurt to particularly people of colour. That's the that's the the platform decision, isn't it? And I was very pleased when Miley Yiannopoulos eventually got banned from Twitter because the reason he was banned was for harassing Leslie Jones, who was in Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't about his views, which were, as it turned out, also equally abhorrent. It, it was about his behaviour and I think that's probably the kind of synthesis of mine and Aisha's positions which is that he's got to be held to account for his for his behaviour and, and and if he is on there as you say race baiting people then and that is that is crossing a, a line because it is it is at that point become harassment and yeah I just I find it so difficult because at the same extent you know unless you can fully chase people out of public life then a, they, they love a bit of that you know Tommy Robinson has made a oh Stephen Yaxley Lennon as we probably call him has made a kind of entire career out of oh you know I was just bravely truth telling about these grooming trials and actually what he was doing was he was in contempt of court you know just a bog standard old fashioned defence about you know nearly collapsing a trial and then guess what a report comes out today saying that the majority of child abuse is carried out yeah. by white men because the majority of, of men in Britain are white and, and there is no particular you know racial breakdown to, to it as an offence it is unfortunately a sex-based offence but I find it really hard to come up with the answer to that one and and I'm and, and as a white person I always try not to kind of go well I look at me I've got all the answers like if only anyone would listen to me but I, mm. I, 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 and I, I wish I wish someone had the answers and yeah. I'm not sure anyone does and at the same time to loop into the conversation we had earlier I just think you know just cancelling somebody is not the answer either because it just gives no. them actually you know that's exactly what he sort of wants he does want to be this sort of huge social martyr really really difficult it's really difficult but also it's very confusing about how many new parties there are because Nigel Farage has started a new party as well mm. as the Brexit party what? you've got Lawrence Fox's yeah there's just a lot of new parties going around they all begin with they're all sort of around renewal yeah they all do yeah. sound like apprentice candidates don't they there's been yeah. a real kind of like <laughs> recycling initiatives yeah. Why does Nigel Farage need a new party? Sorry, I've mentioned genuine. He's, he's doing. He wants an anti-lockdown party because, as I said, COVID is the new Brexit. We're all going to get an anti-lockdown party when there's a vaccine in about six months. It's going to be quite a <laughs> yeah. short, like when there's proper rollout to everybody. 
going to be quite short-lived party. Mind you, I guess there won't be a market for a Brexit party if we do finally leave the EU. So he's oh, got no, to no, find because a... apparently, because I interviewed Nigel Farage on my show on Sunday and he said if there's any deal, it's a betrayal of Brexit and, you know, he's not going away on this. Oh, oh, oh I mean, I am surprised. I had thought he'd probably go, oh, I got everything I wanted. I'm so happy. Of, no, of no, 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 no. He said that unless Boris Johnson sticks to his guns and does a no deal, then he's it's a betrayal. <sighs> Oh God! Dear God! Oh. I've got to the point like where I think Nigel Farage is going to be gets up in the morning and and says what's for breakfast and his wife says you know eggs and he says I wanted toast I will start a political party <laughs> then give me the toast party. I'm joining the toast party. Strange... The toast yeah. party sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that strange phase when a lot of um not to name names but a lot of sort of centrist men just started they would just get pissed at one night and start a party on Twitter. There was a whole phase of people did that. Johnny on Watch started a party. If you remember. Change UK obviously being the but then do you not remember spring that what was Julian Warren started one that was spring spring the vote spring the something it was called it definitely wasn't the spring watch was it it was not somebody <laughs> yeah. who wants to start a new party shouldn't be allowed to start a new party yeah. them's the rules yeah. what about you Mick uh, zombie minks yeah. <gasps> zombie minks sums up 2020 for me and in case any listeners are thinking are you okay Mick do you need a lie down the answer is yes yes I do but also back in November over in Denmark a rushed cull over fears of a coronavirus mutation in minks meant that they slaughtered thousands of them, buried them in really light soil in shallow pits, and then gases happened, the bodies inflated, and they sort of rose to the top. Oh my and God. It's, it's that wonderful blend of farcical and horrific, which I think is 2020 in a nutshell. Can you imagine what it smelled like? Oh, oh. Yeah, it makes me feel a bit bilious. It was the most grotesque <laughs> story ever. It literally was. It's like, how could you make coronavirus even... Oh, yeah. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Bloated, yeah. dead animals. It, presumably some of them maybe even exploded, right? Do you oh, remember I that thought amazing, so. Have you ever seen the amazing footage of that whale on the beach that they were really worried was going to explode? And so they decided to put a little bit of dynamite in to blow it up in a controlled explosion massively overcooked it and there's a news report going well here we are on the beat and you just hear bang and like huge bits of whale meat start raining down <laughs> and they're like and the guy just goes oh my god it smells so fishy <laughs> <laughs> uh, that reminds me I studied medieval history uh, at A level because I was clearly very ambitious and our teacher told us this story about when William the Conqueror was buried his body was so fat he'd got so fat and been left while they were waiting for the funeral that when they went to push the coffin lid down he just exploded <gasps> and so everyone left the church on William the Conqueror's funeral oh my god that story is so horrific yeah you're welcome I can't, I've, got, I've literally got nothing to say to that <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying anything because that might happen to me when I die <laughs> <laughs> well if, lo- if lockdown carries on it's going to happen to all of us <laughs> two quick questions for you again it's a two-parter what word do you not want to hear in 2021 or do you want to hear less of in 2021 Helen's literally put her head in her hands <laughs> I could just think of so many words I never want to hear again um I've taken a personal vow not to use the word woke again because I think it has 
like lots of those words that originally were quite useful and were was used by people to describe themselves and describe political position it's just ended up kind of completely veering off into being a kind of little dismissive jab and I think as Aisha said this several times which I think is a really fair point is that lots of these cultural controversies come from a basically good starting point which is the world is systemically mm. racist opportunities are denied to minority people that you know much easier to get for people like I don't want to be dismissive of the fundamental motives of some of the things that the turn into you know this uh, symptomatically are quite annoying because the, the the core of them is is good and so i'm i'm on a personal self-denying ordinance on that one just on that as well you know it's just interesting all the you know all the sort of race stuff I've just seen that like the race the racial disparities report which was a really important piece of work guess what's been pushed back to the spring of 2021 and the government's also just cancelled i did um a tv show uh, the other day where they were talking about can the government's cancelled all unconscious bias training because they just think there's no need for it and the government minister that i was on with the, the tory mp i was on with was going oh it's all about value for money and literally an hour later it was announced that dominic cummings had got like a sort of 40 grand pay rise <laughs> so mm. there are so many like terrible issues that we need to focus on but then that's just a separate rant with a kind of you know loops back to what we were saying earlier so the thing what is the phrase that i'm it's got to be unprecedented times i'm so sick of hearing that phrase they've got to be precedented now right yeah i've had a lot of bad jokes about barnard castle i think you know it's time for everyone to go we've had our fun we've made a lot of great jokes about (laughs) tests but like let's leave that one in 2020 we've done it it's done it's all done yeah the other one is substantial meal like I feel like I've had like a lot of debate about substantial meals, and sc- I need, I know Scotch too egg. much about Scotch eggs. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I love a Scotch egg. It's never leaving my. It's never leaving my vocabulary. I would like to see less of the word "I," as in bringing everything back to the self, and see more of that reporting that Helen was talking about earlier, when it is like proper old school journalism rather than everything is coloured with some sort of opinion that's what I'd like to see less of Mm. Hannah? Yeah, Trump I'd like him and all of his to go away and me not have to hear about them anymore but I also would quite like the media to stop talking about him Joe Biden basically got elected because he wasn't Donald Trump but I don't think he should get an easy ride because he's not Donald Trump and therefore I think if the media guarantee that they will hold joe biden to account for what he does and never say well it could be worse we could have donald trump he's gone now but isn't it interesting that how trump the sort of prevalence of trump has started to ebb away like i mean i even noticed it. i mean i was lucky enough to have the news break when i was on air on my show i ended up doing this extended show um after cnn has declared it for for biden and the front bit of the show was just all Trump, like, you know, Trump, 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 Trump. And even during the sort of four and a half hours that I was on air, the show just naturally merged or, or evolved into, by the end of the show, it did feel like Trump, it did felt kind of irrelevant even to sort of mention mm. his his name. And, it, you know, we were all obsessed with him. Like, we were absolutely obsessed with him. Now his tweets just, I mean, they always looked insane, but it's interesting about how you know people can be like so part of your everyday consciousness but they can ebb away quite quickly as well like power does drain away quite power and influence does drain away quite quickly from people yeah particularly if you've skinned them to wear as a coat (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I would like to know on the flip side of that, what word you would like to hear more in 2021, because it would be nice to end on a positive. Helen. I've got stuck on, uh, I'd like to hear more of best-selling author Helen Lewis. Um, (laughs) Absolutely, me too. I'm I'm all for that. (laughs) No, I've got, no, I, I, yeah, it it was a bad year to bring out a book. That's, um, that's my, my gripe for me to end on. So I'm looking forward to maybe even doing like some in-person events. Remember, remember people? Oh, yeah. Things yeah. With people. yeah. Yeah. Remember the outside of your house. Yeah. Um, I, no, that's terrible. I can't end on that. I would like people to talk more about me. I mean, <laughs> no, really... we've just done a whole thing about how we don't want to hear the word I anymore. Yeah. No, I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear about anyone else. Like, <laughs> uh, only, Actually, only Helen, me. the very last thing that I was supposed to do in the world before lockdown that I cancelled was coming to see your book yeah. talk at Cambridge with Sophie Walker. We were, we Sophie had tickets. Walker. We were going to go for a pint afterwards, and we we couldn't go. Yeah. That sounds nice. Well, let's make a 2021 date because yeah. I think next year is just going to be kind of, if any, you know, once the vaccine rollout's there, I, I think it's going to be kind of party central. What's really interesting to me is there's so little writing or, or so little awareness when you read writings from the 20s about the flu pandemic. And I know that's because it followed incredibly hot on the heels of the First World War and they were still kind of chewing over that. And that's, again, that was more of a, I know it's not a culture war because it was a literal war, but there were more things to say about it, whereas the, the flu pandemic was just a terrible thing that happened. So there wasn't a kind of political edge to it necessarily. But in a way, I, I wonder how quickly we're all going to kind of just put this behind us mm. and whether or not that's a good thing. Because I think there's going to be a lot of people who've had a really, really grim year. And I hope that they feel that they can kind of talk about it. Like the most consistent thing that I've, my friends have been saying in WhatsApps for the last couple of weeks is, I know I shouldn't complain because lots of people have had it worse, but I'm really struggling. Yeah. And I think that's a kind of really important thing is to go, just because everyone else is also having a shit time, it's okay to say you're having a shit time. Like mm. the fact that the rest of the world is, you know, is, is, is in a bad state doesn't automatically make your life better. So I hope, I hope that there's a, there's a period of processing the horror of this year. And then I hope it's party. I will, I will go to an improv night if you invite me. I will go to see your boyfriend's band play. <laughs> I, I, I will. That's all stuff I will now do gratefully. <laughs> Aisha, what word would you like to hear more of in 2021? I want to hear more about Kamala Harris. That is, they're the two words I want to hear more about. I think that Joe Biden is very, I mean, look, all eyes are going to be in America next year. It's going to be so interesting to see what he does, but it's also going to be really interesting to see what she does as well, because potentially she is going to be the first woman and first woman of colour that ever has a serious shot at being president and what I really hope is that having you know swept in on this tide of being progressive and you know Kamala was a great sort of combination with him as the sort of old you know pale male and stale kind of bloke I hope that he does treat her as a true equal I hope she is not um, a bit of a political accoutrement. This is something that Helen knows that I feel very strongly about. I don't want her to just be used as doing women's issues or BAME outreach or all those kind of crude Mm -hmm. things. I want her to have a proper seat at the table in her white trouser suit. And I want to see a new model of a partnership where a man and a woman are like true sort of equals. I mean, I'm not saying she'll be exactly the same as him, but I think this could be quite groundbreaking for for the effect that it could have 
across other countries but also in business as well when women are deputies it's often a really shitty rule because it's often a sort of symbolic oh look we are like really progressive because we have got women here women here but she's not really part of the key decision making so i want to make sure that's what i want to hear a lot about next year hannah class i would just like to hear the word class more in political conversations i think Politics has become well bougie in recent years. We've done a lot of talking about class, but without actually including working class people in that conversation. The BBC recently talking about how they were going to hit certain measures on how many BME, BAME staff they had, even though BAME is not a useful yeah. sort of metric at all, and how many disabled staff they were going to have, how many women staff they were going to have, and absolutely no recognition that almost all of those people will still be drawn from the same pool of people who went to, you know, a certain group of schools. And I, I think if we're going to get true diversity, and it, I mean, people quite often react and think you're saying, I don't think we should have figures for black people or people figures for women. And I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there are plenty of those people are like who are working class, in fact, huge numbers of them. So I see progress as when we we will look more diverse when we actually truly represent all backgrounds, all ways of life, all economic environments run over. <laughs> Mick? Hope. I just like more hope. Let's feel hopeful. It feels like 2020 has been a massive slog. And on, on what Helen said about how we're going to reflect on the pandemic, I do think there's probably going to be a mental health pandemic that follows this and that means that we have to say as strong as we can and as hopeful as we can as hard as it is so yeah i want to hear more about hope but you know with achievable goals not just pie in the sky stuff i feel like all of what we've said could effectively be covered by that picture of barack obama from 2012 that poster you must yeah. have seen it yeah. yeah no no i just i'm just having a happy moment i've hundred. <laughs> Five, my flea bag moment. Um, five hundred pages in. I tell you what, you couldn't flea bag over that. That is one long ass autobiography. It's quite interesting if you're really into the weeds of wanting to know about Mitch McConnell's manoeuvring over healthcare. I'm sorry, I don't know why I started going on a rant about Barack Obama. Uh, what I'm saying is, Barack Obama, a brilliant pro stylist, could have probably just handled three hundred and fifty pages of that book. If I'm honest, Barack. Yeah, yeah. No one has a decent editor anymore. Uh, present company notwithstanding. So. On a note of hope, where can we get more of you two? Because I would absolutely like that. Helen, where can people find you? My day job is at The Atlantic, so you can find me there. I have a newsletter called The Blue Stocking, which you can find at helenlewis.substack.com. And hopefully the one place you can't find me is on the internet wasting time because I've got another book to write. Following up my first book, which is available uh, in uh, all good bookshops and also some non-taxpaying ones too. It's called Difficult Women. (laughs) And it's excellent. I heartily recommend everyone read it. It's so, so good. Aisha, what about you? You can read me in the Evening Standard every Wednesday and you can listen to me on Times Radio every Saturday and Sunday from four until seven. And you can also find me pishing about on Twitter way too much. Aisha, are you finding yourself going a bit Alan Partridge? Like how much, what effect on the human brain does doing that much radio every week have on you? (laughs) I have gone full Partridge, like definitely. I've started to wear like golf jumpers and things like that, (laughs) driving gloves. Um, Yeah, no, it it does. I'm also just obsessed with my show the whole time. Like, so I spend the whole week 
just thinking about what guests I can get on the next week because I do love it but I've also become slightly obsessed with it as well I also become obsessed with a well-timed loo break in the middle of my show as well that is really important <laughs> three hours it's quite long I misheard I you I thought you said a well-timed lube break and I wonder <laughs> oh, what you were oiling up and on that note and on that bombshell (laughs) thank you so so much for joining us that was a cracking review of a not so cracking year standard issue for all women